You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by a very special and very esteemed guest, Dr. Beth Carlin. So Dr. Carlin is a globally renowned physician, scientist, and recognized expert on ovarian cancer, and her clinical practice is dedicated to delivering compassionate cancer care to women and their families, and her research focuses on understanding the genetic drivers of ovarian cancer and molecular biomarkers for early detection and treatment. Regarded as a giant in the field of ovarian cancer, we love Dr. Carlin for her commitment to our overcomers and for always freely sharing her time and her invaluable knowledge with all of us. So grab your coffee. I have mine and I know she has hers too. And join us for the next 45 minutes to an hour as we chat with Dr. Carlin about ovarian cancer genetics and everything new and exciting happening in the space of ovarian cancer. And if you have any questions as we go along, please type in the comment sections below and we will get it addressed post the discussion. And by the way, I'll be taking some hearts and uh, likes and all you know good comments for the new necklace that I'm showing off for Overcome today, which um, is coming to you, Dr. Carlin, as a gift for being on this episode of Connect Over Coffee. So with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Carlin, and welcome back to you to this episode. Always such an honor to have you with us. Well, Runcy, um, thank you for that very kind introduction. It's thrilling to be back here with you and all the overcomers. It's great to see you um, post-pandemic now, and um, hopefully all the overcomers are getting out there a bit more and uh, being able to live a full life. Absolutely. That's a really good message to start off our discussion. So, um, Dr. Carlin, I have a lot of questions for you, but just to get us started, you know, um, tell us why genetic testing is important and why should we pay more attention to it? Sure. Um, so, as Renzi was saying, um, I've been in, had the privilege to be inspired by women with ovarian cancer that has allowed me to think deeply about the underlying causes, how do we treat ovarian cancer better? How do we get women with ovarian cancer to live the longest, most full lives possible? But also after these 30 years of caring for women, how do we just stop? How do we prevent ovarian cancer from occurring? And it's really led me to think more and more about genetics, about why do some women get ovarian cancers and others not? Why do some women live many decades with ovarian cancer and others not? Um, and as we've come to understand cancers and ovarian cancer in particular, we understand some of the genetic drivers and some of the genetic predisposition that leads to it. What's become standard of care now for you know, way over a decade is to recommend to all women with ovarian cancer to see if they've inherited a predisposition, have germline testing done to see if they carry a gene like BRCA1 or BRCA2. We've also learned that there's probably a dozen different genes um, with a different strength of the impact of whether or not women will inherit an ovarian cancer risk. And that testing now is widely available, um, can be done on saliva, can be done on blood, can be done in your home. Um, and is universally recommended for all women with ovarian cancer so that for a number of things. One, um, it helps your doctor know if you have ovarian cancer, having the genetic testing may help your doctor know what type of treatments may be best for you. We know medicines like PARP inhibitors that have really transformed many ovarian cancer survivorship for many. Um, are most effective if you have one of these genetic factors. Um, but it also has implications for your family, for daughters, sons, sisters, brothers, et cetera, to allow you, you know, to share the information um, so that they might be able to take proactive steps 
to not get ovarian cancer or any of the cancers, the other cancers associated with this genetic predisposition. Thank you, Dr. Carlin. So, you know, you you mentioned the, the BRCA genes, right? So, um, so we hear about BRCA1 and BRCA2. We understand that they are unique in their own characteristics, and but yet both of them carry the risk for both breast and ovarian cancer. So can you help us understand what is like, what is the difference between BRCA1 and 2? What risk uh, factors do they bring to the table when it comes to ovarian cancer? Not just the um, the detection, but also how the you know the the disease may progress from one stage yeah. to other. Anything that you may want to share um, based on these two main. Yeah. Um, I, I think we know that cancers in general are the most common genetic disease. And they occur from an accumulation of what we call mutations, breaks in the genes that don't allow them to work normally, and thereby the cells can grow unchecked and can metastasize and form tumors. The BRCA genes and really the other 10 genes or so that are associated with inherited ovarian cancer risk are all involved in DNA repair. So that as we go through life, as we age, as we go in the sun, as we eat different things, as cells just reproduce to repair themselves, there's an occasional typo. And over evolution, we have many, many ways within our cells to repair the DNA. What the BRCA and associated genes do is they impair that repair mechanism. So you no longer have the white out to fix your typo. And you start to get mishmash and the genes don't know when to stop working, when to start working, and the cells continue to proliferate. So both BRCA1 and BRCA2 and RAD51C and RAD51D and RIP1 and PALB2 and all these genes that are associated with ovarian cancer, they all work in the same, they're all sort of cogs in a similar wheel that fit together to repair DNA. Each one though has a slightly different what we call penetrance, how strong they influence your risk of beer, of ovarian cancer. So BRCA1 is the strongest. Um, it's the one that was first discovered. It's the one that's most associated with ovarian cancer. Um, it's about 40, you know, uh, your lifetime risk of ovarian cancer is about 40 to 60%. So importantly, again, it's not 100% penetrant. So having a BRCA gene doesn't mean you're a ticking time bomb and you're going to get ovarian cancer, what we're trying to understand is even in women who are at high risk, how do we still prevent ovarian cancer? BRCA2 is about half as strong, it's about 15 to 30%. But still these numbers, when you think about the general population risk of women without these genetic predispositions being less than one and a half percent, having a BRCA gene is still 30 times more than an average woman. Yeah. So it's still high risk and something you need to take advantage, be empowered by that information. Don't, I, I understand the fear that comes with it, especially when you've lost someone you love to ovarian cancer, but use it as an impetus to drive you to take control, take power, find out what you can do to reduce your risk of getting ovarian cancer as well. If you already have ovarian cancer, with our better treatments, you're still at risk for other cancers. You're, you're still at high risk for breast cancer, for pancreatic cancer. And depending on where you are in your treatment course, you know, should you consider you know, risk-reducing mastectomy? Should you at least have breast MRI or other things? I've had many patients who are doing well you know, a decade after their ovarian cancer diagnosis, and then they get breast cancer and need chemo or treatment all over again. So um, while BRCA1 and BRCA2 are most known for their association with breast and ovarian cancer, especially BRCA2 is also associated with pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer in men, melanoma, male breast cancer, so these genes are not, although the breast and ovarian cancer affect women most frequently, they're not on the 
sex chromosomes, the X and Y chromosomes. So men are just as likely to have and to pass on a BRCA mutation as women. So it really is important in understanding your own family history as we're thinking about holidays coming up and you know Easter, Passover, Ramadan, all these things, families gather. Think about your family tree. And your dad's family history is just as important as your mom's. Right, exactly. You may, I mean, your dad's not going to get ovarian cancer, but what about his other relatives as well? So, Dr. Carlin, I had two follow up questions to what you just said that, you know, we were talking about BRCA1 and 2. Now, would have you seen in your, um, you know, in your career, like people that have both carry both one and two together? And so does that inherently increase their risk even further because they carry both mutations? And also between BRCA1 and BRCA2, I think you mentioned that BRCA1 is more risk, brings more risk to the table. So um, once we have all this information, you know, how, what do we do with it? I mean, just guys that yeah um so you know we're made up of genes from our mom and our dad and as we said earlier both mom and dad can carry these genes and i have have more than a handful of patients who have gotten a brca1 from a mom and a brca2 from a dad and have both they do have a higher risk um it's mostly driven by their brca1 risk but they do have a high risk um so it's not impossible um i think it's important that even if you find out um, that your family has a BRCA1 gene, to have really the standard of care right now is to have what we call panel testing, to have a panel of many cancer-associated genes um, to see if you have other contributions as well. And we see surprises there all the time. So I, I would really recommend that. So once you have this information, ways you can empower yourself um, depends on where you are in your life's journey. Um, if you're cancer-free, um, you may decide to reduce your risk of ovarian, fallopian tube, and peritoneal cancers, which really are now, we think of all as one disease. Um, I'm going to step back for one second, Runcie. Um, Ovarian cancer, of course, is not one disease. I think that that's very important. And the different cell types of high-grade serous cancer, which is the most common type, the one that's most typically associated with BRCA1 and BRCA2, has specific genetic drivers. Um, then there's clear cell cancers, endometrioid cancers, mucinous, and those have different drivers. And so when I say grouping together peritoneal, fallopian tube, and ovarian, I'm thinking about it in the BRCA context in terms of high-grade serous ovarian cancers. So if you're cancer-free, some things you can do. Um, first, enhanced surveillance. So especially for the breast cancer risk, we know that breast MRI is a very important adjunct to mammography, um, especially in younger women, um, you know, before age 35, before 30, MRI is actually going to be better. It's unusual to get breast cancer that young, but MRI from 25 would be a recommendation once a year. Um, there are medicines that can reduce your risk of breast cancer. Again, usually when you're older, um, that should be discussed with your physician. In terms of the ovarian cancer risk, um, we know that things like birth control pills, even in BRCA carriers, can reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. So um, even if you're not sexually active um, or have an IUD or have another means, by reducing your ovulations so that um, that will reduce your risk of ovarian cancer. Um, if you've completed childbearing or if you're considering having pre-implantation genetic testing so that the embryos don't have a BRCA gene. You can consider having a salpingectomy, having your fallopian tubes removed even sooner. And there's been a big push 
lately to increase the education about the potential benefits of self-injectomy? I think it's twofold. First is that we still don't have a effective, reliable way to screen for ovarian cancer. CA125 and ultrasound have been out there, but they've not been shown to really improve the survival from ovarian cancer. They can perhaps find ovarian cancer a bit early, earlier at stage one versus stage three and been able to downstage, but not necessarily improve survival. So the thought has been to move towards prevention approaches. So the idea will be behind removing the fallopian tube really comes from our risk-reducing procedures in BRCA patients. We began to see when we removed these specimens of the fallopian tube and ovary, doing a risk-reducing salpingo-ulfrectomy to reduce the risk of cancer, that there were early cancers, but they were in the fallopian tube and not in the ovary. We've said earlier that BRCA-associated ovarian cancers are most likely high-grade serous ovarian cancers. The native cells that line a fallopian tube in a woman are serous cells. So the thought is that these tumors actually begin by the transformation, by the genetic damage to the cells that normally live on the fallopian tube that are serous cells, that be, they become first dysplastic, precancerous, and then high-grade serous ovarian cancers. And the reason that that occurs, and linking it back to my birth control pill comment earlier, is that each month when a woman ovulates, this, the egg bursts from the surface of the ovary. That egg has been bathed in growth factors and all the things that help the egg mature. They're really important growth factors that make that egg get to that state. When the egg bursts out, there's enzymes that allow it to escape. It looks like something happening on the sun, you know, a, a beautiful burst as the egg leaves the ovary. The fallopian tube, normal physiology, here's my fist, this is my fallopian, this is my ovary. And here's the fallopian tube going like this. It's going to pick up the egg. And those serous cells that are lining the fingers, what we call the fimbria of the fallopian tube, as they're going to pick up the egg, are experiencing the growth factors, the enzymes. And that can cause what we call genotoxic stress. It causes those enzymes can damage the cells on the, the fallopian tube cells um, so that they begin to accumulate these this altered DNA. And it's this genotoxic damage that occurs month after month that causes the cells, the serous cells on the surface of the fallopian tube to undergo transformation meaning that they go from a normal serous cell to a precancerous to a cancerous serous cell that begins in the fallopian tube. So the idea is by removing the fallopian tube, you can maintain your ovarian function and the hormones and the ovulation later into life but that the cells that are likely the origins of ovarian cancer have been removed. Now it gets more complicated. Um, you need to remember that removing the fallopian tube is only an interim step to allow you to keep your ovaries till you're a bit older, because we don't know when those cells, remember we've been calling it ovarian cancer for so long because it's the ovary that seems to grow, right? It has all these growth factors. It's a fertile soil for the cancer cells to grow on too. So those cells, when they transform, they sit on the ovary and that's where they start to grow and form the tumors. So we don't know exactly when that happens. So removing the fallopian tube is an interim step to allow women who have a BRCA mutation to 
keep their ovaries in place and keep their hormonal function, delay menopause a bit later. Um, as I say, it still is important at some point to have the ovaries removed. But I'm seeing more and more in my practice, younger women, 25, 22 single, who have a BRCA mutation, who elect to have the fallopian tubes removed even at that stage. They can still, they'll have their normal periods and all and normal function, and they can still conceive with assisted reproductive technologies, IVF type of technologies. And many of them may elect to do an embryo selection in that process so that they would only implant embryos that do not have a BRCA gene. Mm -hmm. I'm not recommending that. I think that's a personal decision to have a discussion with each individual patient. But I hope that some of the rationale with, you know, it began by seeing these early cancers in the tube when we were doing risk-reducing surgery for BRCA patients. We began to see more and more, there were large population retrospective studies with tens of thousands of women demonstrating that if women, again, this is all based on chart, remu chart reviews, but if women had had their ovaries, excuse me, their fallopian tubes out in the past for another reason, that they had a lower risk of ovarian cancer. So it's it, it's an evolution of our understanding due to collaborations of, you know, pathologists, molecular biologists, gynecologic oncologists, epidemiologists. And when we talk about team science and really bringing all this knowledge together to make these advances, I think the recommendation for salpingectomy can likely can, you know, add to um, the use of birth control pills to further reduce the incidence of ovarian cancer. You know, in one of the nicest things, uh, well, you know, in my career, I've been seeing the risk of ovarian cancer, the incidence in recent years continue to go down. Um, and we'll see, again, we still have the prospective studies looking at salpingectomy are still ongoing. Um, but we'll see those results in within the next five years and, and have some more important information there. Wonderful. So just going back to your comment on the birth control pills, right? So we know that it reduces risk. So again, if you can filter it down to us to what is the specific recommendation, because, you know, we don't know how many years should we be taking the birth control pills. And I've also heard that when once you and please um, guide us through this is that once you cross a certain age limit, sometimes birth control pills can uh, increase your blood pressure and, uh, you know, it can increase your risk for heart attacks and such. So can you filter it down to for us to know more about what, what is the optimal window and timing of using birth control pills to reduce risk? So it's a um, cumulative number of years. So you may have taken birth control pills for two years in college and then stopped or four years in college and then stopped and then later on. So what the data show is that, you know, five years is great. Ten years is a little bit better. We don't have a lot of data that say it continues to add up beyond 10 years, but it's sort of a linear stepwise, you know, one, two years is better than one, three years better than two. Um, and it's really a cumulative risk through your life of years of birth control pill use. It does not have to be consecutive years. Birth control pills obviously should not be used after menopause, so after age 50 or so. There are sometimes they're prescribed in the perimenopause, but that's not necessarily to reduce the risk and something that should be discussed. <clears throat> Risks for blood clots, heart attacks, migraines, all these things do go up with age. So I think this does need to be individualized. Um, if you're a smoker, after age 35, birth control pills can be much more risky. Um, do you have underlying high blood pressure? There are many different birth control pills, and often you can find one that will both reduce your risk of ovarian cancer and, you know, still not impact your blood pressure. 
but these are not, birth control pills are not Flintstone vitamins. And um, it is something that you should discuss, especially over 35, over 40. Um, if you have, if you have, you know, obesity, smoking, migraines, high blood pressure, um, it's not an absolute no-no, but it is definitely something that you need to be much more careful in the prescription, in the monitoring, and something you should discuss with your provider. Perfect. Thank you so very much for filtering it down for us. So moving on to women now, Dr. Carlin, who um, have some sort of family history, right? But do not carry the mutations. So that would be me. So I do not, I did my BRCA. I mean, the whole panel testing, I do not carry the mutation yet. My mom passed away from ovarian cancer. So there's a direct link, right? So Absolutely. we have also met several women, you know, in my time with Overcome that have gone on to develop ovarian cancer, even though they did not carry any mutation, but they just had family history. So there is a missing piece here mm -hmm. somewhere that we haven't found, Absolutely. right? So um, what developments do you see in the horizon for extending the genetic panel and moving into more sophisticated and personalized testing mm -hmm. so we can find better answers for this particular category of women and tell us anything emerging in the future for yeah. testing. Yeah, no, I think, Runcy, you bring up such an important point because the majority of patients, the majority of patients with ovarian cancer do not have one of these high-risk genes we've been discussing the majority. So things that are being looked at are that are, there's so much to say here. Um, people are looking at doing more detailed genetic testing, something called the polygenic risk score, um, which looks at many genetic alterations throughout the whole genome. So doing whole genome testing, doing polygenic risk scores, it's not ready for prime time because we need more data and more information. Um, the other issue with some of these risk scores is that most of the databases we have are predominantly from individuals of, you know, Western European ancestry. And there are different risks amongst different ethnicities and different uh, racial groups that need to be considered as well. So um, we are really trying to roll out information and education about the power of these of genetics to get whole genome sequencing done on larger populations from more diverse backgrounds so that we can better understand what are those genetic drivers, what are the impact of epigenetic alterations of our gene environment interactions of what we eat? What's our stress level? You know, um, ideas around toxic stress that if you are a minority and the world sees you differently, that can add to an added stress that itself can cause changes in immune status, genetic alterations, and what are those impacts? So, um, you know, having a family history, there is some, was there something in the house? Was there something in the diet? What was the stress of having an ill parent? Um, and we first need to understand and identify the drivers, and then we can look at ways for, towards prevention. You know, more data on low-dose aspirin, um, there's vaccine trials looking, you know, just at a BRCA population, but all sorts of new ways to understand how can we prevent these high-grade serous or clear cell or these other types of cancers from occurring. Um, lots of large databases and international collaborations are being done. Whole genome sequencing is becoming less and less expensive, and there are very many large trials and large health systems that are collecting these data across populations. Um, there is a culture in our scientific community to collaborate and share these data, recognizing that to make these insights, we need to have this shared information. So, um, 
Polygenic risk scores are being used more in some other tumor types. We don't have enough data yet for ovarian cancer. Understanding other epigenetic, other lifestyle factors that contribute can also direct us to look at which types of genes. We've been doing some very interesting work in aging. We know that, you know, one of the other significant risk factors for ovarian cancer is aging. It does go up significantly around the time of the menopause. And so we're looking at, um, you know, fallopian tubes in older women versus younger women and using AI and different new techniques to look at these cells, at their genes, to see we've found some genes that are, you know, knocking out in older women that may be able to be targeted to allow those cells to not undergo that transformation and have those toxicities. So I think looking at aging, looking at hormones, looking at family history, looking at all these things, um, it's an age of big data yes. and informatics and big data means integrating, you know, molecular biology, pathology, imaging, family history, epidemiology, all together. Yeah in ways humans have never been able to. Absolutely. So ju just to kind of, you know, summarize what you just said about women who have a family history, but mm -hmm. do not have the mutation, there are some emerging tests and panels and polygenic risk scores that are being worked on, which are not ready for prime time yet, but another, maybe in the next five years or so, someone Absolutely. can get those testing or risk scores done to understand what my risk factor is with having a family history, but not mutation. So, so there are some testing being developed for people like us. Absolutely. And I think the other thing what we were discussing earlier about salpingectomy, um, salpingectomy is something that should be more widely considered. If you've completed your childbearing and you're thinking about getting your tubes tied, have them removed instead. Um, you know, if you have a family history, um, a salpingectomy would be something else to consider. Um, you know, I, I think that we are still awaiting the prospective studies that are being done on a population-wide basis that if someone needs a hysterectomy, you're not gonna have children after a hysterectomy, so make sure the fallopian tubes are removed at the time of the hysterectomy. If you have a family history, if you're concerned and you're having a gallbladder, I mean, removing the fallopian tubes technically as a surgeon is not very complicated and um, should be a discussion to have if indeed, you know, you are at a higher risk, if you have the concern, if you're having another procedure to further reduce your risk of ovarian cancer. That's, that's a really significant point that you made that someone who is already at the operating table for something else, it, it doesn't have to be a hysterectomy. It could be any other procedure that she's you know doing at that point in time. If she carries a family history and if she has that risk factor to have a conversation with the physician, you know, that could this also be done to reduce my risk? Because you talked about, you know, tying the fallopian tubes or taking them out, but not all of us do have C-sections, right? Many of us are like vaginal births, yes. right? So hopefully it, most of us. Yeah. So in those situations, it's not, unless you're asking for it, mm -hmm. it's not an option. You are not really at the surgery table. You're just normally giving birth. So these, you know, these, significant points are so important for us to understand that at what is the actual optimal time to ask for these things or request and if you do carry a personal history so thank you so very much for for the clarification dr carlin and so you know i'm going to touch on a little bit on the part because we are talking about the genetic you know um, the the family with genetics mutations and such, we know that PARP inhibitors work very well for people who carry the mutation, right? And so we also know that recently there have been many things going on as, as far as PARP is concerned with FDA withdrawals and this and that. So 
how does it like, especially in the recurrent setting, right? Mm -hmm. How does it uh, impact someone with BRCA or any kind of mutation? Sure. What is the question they need to be asking their physicians with all these new guidelines that have come up with the PARP inhibitor usage? So if you could just, you know. Sure. Um, quickly, you know, PARP inhibitors have been transformative in terms of allowing women to live longer and be in remission longer. I think the evolution of the FDA recommendation is in part due to the wide use and the acceptance and embracing PARP inhibitors as, as part of our standards of care. Um, when PARP inhibitors were often first approved, they were tested in the recurrent and often in the late recurrent settings, and that's where they got their initial approvals. What we're seeing though, is that it's being used most often as maintenance therapy after primary treatment. And that retreatment with PARP has not yet been shown to be effective, but has also been shown to have greater risks. Um, greater risks in terms of side effects, but also in terms of the bone marrow, risks of not just low blood counts, but potentially having the white cells become you know, dysplastic and be pre-leukemia or get leukemia. Um, but really it's, are they effective still? And a PARP after PARP trial is still ongoing. I think again, um, one needs to individualize how long the patient was on before did it. I mean, th there are times we still would do it, but what we've seen is that the PARP inhibitors seem to have their greatest impact on extending the life of women with ovarian cancer when used in the maintenance setting, that using PARP inhibitors to treat active ovarian cancer has not demonstrated any improved efficacy over other therapies. And now with advances like antibody drug conjugates, um, women have better options. And that's really been the point of the FDA caution that in the maintenance setting, PARP inhibitors in the upfront setting are great. If you didn't have them then because you were lucky enough to have been in remission longer than when you recur, PARP inhibitors should be, should be used then. Um, but if you've already had a PARP inhibitor, and then recurred. There are clinical trials looking at a PARP inhibitor with another mechanism and another type of gene inhibitor, an ATRG, you know, other, other enzyme inhibitors that can allow perhaps retreatment re of PARP to have better use. But um, PARP inhibitors, as I say, have been as transformative as platinum and taxol in helping women with ovarian cancer live even longer but it's also learning when to stop them yeah. and when perhaps a different treatment would be even better. And and thank you for that clarification because I was just talking to another, you know, someone just the other day who was on PARP for a few years. Um, and then, you know, her doctor just kind of decided to, to pull her out of the PARP because according to him it's not necessary or because of the fda approvals we don't i mean withdrawals we don't know but she was very you know anxious uh, about the decision because you know she was doing well while on parp and you know that 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 fear comes back that you know if you take away the parp is my cancer going to come back it's going to return what is going to happen so yeah. i feel like you know with all these new guidelines out the physicians probably need to talk to the patients yeah. personalized, like you're saying, on an individual basis, because, you know, in certain situations, it may still be okay. I mean, we don't know. Right. In certain situations, but I think the current approval in the trials have not demonstrated efficacy beyond about two years in general. And I start that conversation ahead of time. Sometimes patients say, you know, hey, can I go an extra few months? And, you know, again, um, I think we want to try to manage the, you know, fear of having recurrence, which is very real. Um, the other piece I'd add, Rancy, though, is that 
as I now have had more patients, more and more patients complete their two years of POPs and come off of them, I will say universally, universally, I can rarely use that word. Every single one comes back the next month or the month after to tell me how much better they feel in terms of energy, taste, just they they just feel much better. Their life is back a little bit more when they stop the part. They didn't realize what it meant, but their appetite, foods taste better, their energy, their sleep. They actually feel so much better. And we talk that, look, you know, you've been two years without recurring. You know, it may still come back, but we have more treatments. You know, it may be a part, again, depending on the specific situation, but we have even better treatments that we're looking at now for new agents in the maintenance setting, in the second maintenance setting, antibody drug conjugates, things, you know, even bevacizumab, but other ways that we can approach maintenance at those later times. So um, it is a very exciting time to um, be in the field of ovarian cancer because of all the clinical trials, the better clinical trial designs, so we get more treatments from the lab to the patients more quickly. Um, And, you know, I would really encourage women with ovarian cancer to find out what their options are. Um, I'm always planning the next, when I start a patient on a therapy for recurrent ovarian cancer, I'm already thinking about what my third and fourth and fifth line treatment are. I hope that doesn't sound depressing to our listeners. I've had many, many patients live more than a decade with ovarian cancer, but you often need ongoing treatments. And I hope my goal for women with ovarian cancer is to be able to really make it a chronic condition that you can live your life with and live a full life um, and not just think of it as a deadly disease. And, and it's so important that you mentioned that because I feel like with so much happening, advancements happening, we are definitively moving to that space where, you know, ovarian cancer is becoming a chronic disease that women kind of live with, manage, and just still lead a full, complete, joyful life, you know? And, and with all those global experts like you taking care of us, you know, I feel like we are already moving to that space. I mean, when my mom was diagnosed 10, 12 years ago, none of this existed. I mean, now in, there's a huge leap that has happened, which is, you know, growth is always exponential, right? So it's it's amazing to see how many steps we have taken since the last 10 years. Just amazing. So I always say to my patients, you know, 10 is not enough. 10 years survival is not enough. We, we really want to go beyond that. Um, and we often have, um, you know, but hopefully every day can be precious. And surely and definitely we are moving there each day, day by day. Mm -hmm. So that's very hopeful. So, um, Dr. Carlin, I, this is a question that, you know, kind of came up from a patient. Um, she wanted to know more about the Signatera testing, Mm -hmm. if I'm pronouncing this right, um, for the gynecology cancers and tell us how it impacts our, our health detection of earlier recurrence in ovarian cancer and any guidance that you may share? Sure. Um, So Signatera is a personalized circulating tumor DNA test to to detect what we call minimal residual disease at the earliest, earliest stages. So someone who has ovarian cancer already, and it would help to monitor the disease. It's not been a proven adjunct to CA125 in ovarian cancer, but it is definitely proven in other tumor types. The way it works is that when you initially have your surgery, your tumor is analyzed and specific DNA alterations in your tumor are made into a test to look for your recurrences. And though that look is done by a blood test without a biopsy to look for these circulating tumor DNA fragments 
that are characteristic of your tumor. The detection of that in tumors like colon cancer have been able have been found to really find the cancers much earlier so that treatments could be started earlier. As I say, we've had patients do it with ovarian cancer. It's benefit on outcome and all since we have something like CA125 is still being examined and there are ongoing studies but it is a very exciting advance. And I think the idea of liquid biopsies, you know, stepping away a second from this, the test that's called Signatera, that is this individualized test, but looking at, you know, often patients will have to have a, you know, repeat biopsy to look for the tumor molecular profiling, for targets, for trials and all we're really getting to the point where we can do a blood test and look at circulating tumor DNA that is looking at gene alterations the same way as would be done on the piece of tumor tissue from the time of surgery or from another type of biopsy. So the use of circulating tumor DNA for specific treatments as a companion diagnostic to say whether or not that treatment would be right for that patient is really very exciting and is being used more and more in women with ovarian cancer. Wonderful, thank you, Dr. Carlin. So, um, you know, we, you talked about genetic testing helping women that are already diagnosed with ovarian cancer, yet we know that, you know, the rates of genetic testing are still so low. We are definitely not where we need to be. And so in your opinion, you know, and you've been an expert in the space for so many years, what are the barriers to genetic testing that we are still not there? And what can we do in terms of just in, in even in terms of messaging to sure. help us get there, especially for women, because we work with many women already diagnosed with ovarian cancer. When we talk to them and we ask them, have you had genetic testing done? They say no, because in, in many situations, they always also say that the providers haven't talked to us about it. Yeah. Um, okay. So you're right. Despite recommendations for universal genetic testing for women with ovarian cancer for over a decade, less than half of the women actually still get it at this time. I think it's it's complicated, quote unquote. Um, it is now covered by, you know, all insurers, the Medicaid's, Medicare, and all if you have ovarian cancer will cover the cost. I think you're right. I think providers don't always discuss it. Um, so I think women need to be empowered with the information. They need to understand it can not only help them in terms of treatment selection, can help them prevent a second cancer, can help them in terms of interpretation of a CAT scan. Is that spot a different cancer or is it this cancer? You know, what else needs to be done? So it can be of benefit to them. And then, you know, the idea of sharing that information with other family members. But I do think, Runcy, you know, the idea of implementation of how do we get this out there to all women with ovarian cancer, we take lessons. I've taken lessons from looking at the COVID vaccine rollout, understanding communities. When you speak to women, they say they haven't had it. You know, what are the reasons? Is it just that the provider didn't mention it? Or did they, I have patients tell me, I really don't want to know. Um, there's complicated family dynamics. Um, there are still fears of what does it mean? What are you going to do with this? I, I do want to mention, though, that a, some of the consumer-directed testing, things like, you know, that you can buy in the pharmacy and all, are not the same type of medical-grade genetic testing to look for all the variants um, many of the bracket tests that you can buy over the counter like that only look for three specific mutations that are most common in individuals of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. So if you're an African-American, an Indian, an, you know, Latina, and you do that, having a normal test is sort of garbage for you because it's unlikely for you to have one of those three 
three specific mutations. There are hundreds of BRCA mutations and other genes as well that can increase your risk. So um, there may be mistrust. Um, genetic counselors are great. Um, you know, speak to someone um, who you trust and get this information. Not only can it help you get access to better treatments, different clinical trials, you can use this almost as a gift to your family. Um, I have a very dear patient who has ovarian cancer, who used to be an NP, a nurse practitioner, and um, has a BRCA mutation. And every year she sends me a growing picture of her family and her cousins who, she, who are all BRCA carriers, who she has personally taken as a mission to reach out to a very extended family. And the numbers she's found that um, have been able to be empowered by this and take risk-reducing measures. And um, in some ways she's their guardian angel okay. to help them prevent the ovarian cancer. So the genetic testing, we need stories from women of all races, of all ethnicities, of all ages. Um, BRCA-associated cancers are not just in young women. My oldest patient who had was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and had a BRCA mutation was 102 years old. Her daughter had been my patient. Her daughter was 81, had had testing, found that she had a BRCA2 mutation. She didn't recommend, her mom was in a, a nursing facility, but her mom then presented with ascites at 102 did have a BRCA gene and did have ovarian cancer. So, you know, so my only point of that anecdote is if you have ovarian cancer, even if you're 75, it is still worth having the testing, um, especially as we're living longer, as our families are growing. Um, men and women, as I say, both need to be tested, but we just need to get these empowering messages out there um, and listen to the people, listen to individuals who don't want to be tested, why they don't want to be tested, and try to have a conversation that, um, you know, is able to deliver that information, and, and if not, accept the fact that, okay, you know, if indeed they have a strong family history, and they don't want to be tested, then we almost have to treat them as if they are positive, so we can give them the benefits of the doubt. Um, but we need to, you know, it's shared decision-making. Absolutely. Yeah. And we need just more people like you um, overcome to really reach out as a trusted source to the community and get the, and get this knowledge out there. And we do that when we talk to the patients, especially through our overcare program, we talk to each individual patient. And if they tell us that they have not done genetic testing for whatever reason, we are always recommending that this is why you need to do it. So yeah, we absolutely do that. So it's just a saliva sample. It's spit. You don't even have to get your blood drawn. It's really easy. And that's just as reliable. Exactly. Especially. Thank you. Um, so, Dr. Carlin, you were recently named, well, another, you have so many accomplishments, but you were named the inaugural chairholder for women's health research at UCLA and with a very generous gift and congratulations on that. So with this, what is your vision to, you know, how you want to shape the future of gynecology cancer discoveries? What Tell, tell us about your yeah. vision. This. Um, first, I must say I was incredibly humbled by this dear patient family's um, commitment to women's health. Um, and I think it's really important that we think about our investment in women's health, which clearly has lagged behind many other topics. I think it's an opportunity for me um, to continue some some high risk, high reward potential research, ways to embrace technology, AI, um, to do these large data mergers, things that we've not been able to do before, to do high, you know, high impact work that will integrate 
these data sets, looking at new technologies for early detection. I still believe we, I hope we'll be able to find something even better. Um, looking at aging and how do we live longer and live better? Um, ways to improve survivorship for women with ovarian cancer and better treatments. Can we get vaccines, vaccine therapies, um, vaccines to prevent ovarian cancer, vaccine therapies for ovarian cancer, and really use this as an opportunity to bring together and to also help support and train the next generation. I'm not planning to go anywhere anytime soon. I still have many things I want to accomplish with and for my patients. But I do recognize that, um, you know, until we find cures, until we really find these effective means, we need to be training, inspiring, um, and giving a new generation of ovarian cancer investigators, gynecologic oncologists, medical oncologists, others, the tools to provide the cutting edge, compassionate cancer care that I've been trying to do throughout my whole career. So um, it, it's really been very, very exciting to be named um, the inaugural Marx Chair um, in Women's Health at UCLA. And um, I'm very excited to be able to look at the next years ahead and ways to amplify um, the discoveries that have come so thus far. And we are very excited to follow along your journey to see what else will you do next when it comes to all these discoveries. So thank you. So I've asked you many, many questions, Dr. Carlin. What have I missed that you would like to share? <laughs> I think that patients are the inspiration. I think, you know, listening to patients, understanding patients, partnering with patients um, is very important both to lead us on the path to better treatments, um, but also to deliver on an incredibly rewarding career, an opportunity to be able to help them along this journey. Um, being a gynecologic oncologist has helped define me as a person, has helped enrich my life, has helped me in my relationships with my husband, my kids, and everyone around me to really know which matters matter most and um, to be able to go to bed at night and know that we've had a productive day and been able to really have that purpose um, to try to make the world a better place. That is so beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Carlin. So um, we are about to wrap up, but before we do that, what would be your one message to our overcomers that are listening as they go through treatment for ovarian cancer and also for maybe the family members uh, who are also listening today yeah. with some family history? Yeah. Um, first to the patients that um, live each day to its fullest, Smile when you see the sunrise, hug those around you, that hope and joy really do help you live your best life and can actually have impact on your immune cells and um, that, that really will help you in your journey. For family members, being there, um, by your loved one's side is so important. Um, you too are part of their, important parts of their care team, but you need to take care of yourself as well. Um, caring for the caregiver is very important so that you can be back and having those times for yourself. If you've had a family history, if you have a family history, um, find out as much information as you can Embrace those memories and drive forward your voice. Knowledge is power. And um, we are getting closer and closer to answers um, as the number of investigators in this space, the collaborations 
um, are all ongoing. So I think there's great hope on the horizon and um, hopefully we'll all meet again at some point in the near future. Thank you so much, Dr. Carlin. This was such an empowering and powerful conversation. And thank you for sharing not only your incredible insights, but your hope and your inspiration for our community and, and those of us that are that were listening today. So thank you so very much. We are grateful to you as always. And um, Overcome, this was beneficial for you. I know that I say this each time that we learned so much from our episode guest, but Dr. Carlin is special and she a very great to her for filtering and explaining and clarifying so much great information within one hour, which means that we'll have to get her back for to understand and what she's doing with her vision and in the next, you know, six months to a year. So stay tuned for more episodes of Connect Over Coffee um, as we bring you more episodes and more information as we go along. But until then, you keep overcoming. Thank you and bye. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.